28 through 36, Luke 9, 28 through 36, that is going to be our, our sermon text for today. And please follow along as I start reading in, in Luke 9, verse 28. About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. They became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. All right, please, uh, please pray with me. Father, we come before you and... Father, we ask that you would reveal your glory to us in your word. Father, it is in your word that you have made yourself known. And Father, it is in your word that we see your glory and your majesty. And Father, this is how we come to know you. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit that you would help us understand. And Father, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, since... All of us here are, are originally from different countries. Uh, we are not natives of the United Arab Emirates. I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, have been asked a number of times what it is like where you are from. What does it look like? What is the culture like? What are the people like? Well, that, that question or those questions can actually be very difficult to answer. How are you going to fully capture or fully describe what it is like where you are from, what the people are like, what the culture is like, what it, what it looks like, what the sights and the smells are in a few words? Uh, you can't really do that. It's, in, it's impossible. You know that someone would have to visit. They would have to see it and experience it for themselves to really get an idea of what it's like where you are from. And even then, they would probably have to visit for some length of time. Uh, the same thing is, is true with majestic landscapes in, in nature. You can read about what it, is, what it is like to see like great grand mountains covered in snow. You can read about what it is like to stand on the beach and, and look out at the ocean. You can read about what it is like to see a giraffe or a lion in the wild. And you can even see pictures of these things. But you know that just reading about it, you know that even just flipping through a book that has some wonderful pictures about those things is, is much different than seeing it in person. Uh, the majesty of those scenes is only realized as you see them and as you experience them. Well, this is a, a little bit like, or this helps us a little bit to kind of get our minds around what was happening with Jesus at the Transfiguration. 
So the, the transfiguration, you probably see that heading in your Bible before these verses. The transfiguration simply refers to this amazing scene from Jesus' time on earth when he was transformed, or transfigured, transformed, transfigured, basically the same thing, transformed or transfigured before a handful of his disciples. His face changed, his clothing changed, and in his transfiguration, his glory was partly, partially revealed to a few of his disciples. And now the disciples, in, in their time with Jesus, had obviously come to, to know Jesus, right? They had been walking with him, he had taught them, they had been witnesses to his power and authority and glory as he was performing miracles among them and in their midst. But the glory of, of Jesus was revealed in an even greater way to these select disciples, Peter, James, and John, on that mountain. Now, I want to be clear as I say that. The disciples, all the disciples, had everything they needed to believe in Jesus. It was not as if the transfiguration was needed for these disciples to place their faith in Jesus. Just as you do not need Jesus to do any miraculous sign in front of you to give you what you need to believe. But the transfiguration did reveal Jesus' glory in a greater way. And so the, the main idea of this text, I think what Luke wants you to see, and I think what Luke wants you to do, is behold the glory of Jesus and follow Jesus who is infinitely glorious. Behold and follow Jesus who is infinitely glorious. So as we think about that main idea, as we think about the transfiguration, I have three points for you to consider in today's sermon. First is revelation. Second is confirmation. And the third is response. So three words, three points, revelation, confirmation, and response. So the sermon may be a bit more theological than normal, a little bit more explanation and a little bit less application, uh, but I, I hope it will be a blessing to you as we consider these things. So first, we want to look at this idea of, of revelation. And the first question that we really want to, to ask is just what was happening on that mountain? What was happening as Jesus was transfigured? Well, the answer is that the, the transfiguration, as we just said, is a revelation of the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. His glory was being revealed. His true nature was being revealed. You can look again at verse 32 of our text. Verse 32, when Peter and his disciples wake up, what is it that they see? The text says they see Jesus' glory. That leads to the question then, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be glorious? What is Jesus' glory? Well, like it might be difficult to describe your hometown or the people from where you are from, it can actually be a difficult thing to to precisely define Jesus' glory or, or what that means. Now, these are some of the definitions that I came across in, in my study. So the, the first defines the glory of God this way. The glory of God is the beauty of his spirit. It is not an aesthetic beauty or a material beauty, but it is the beauty that comes from his character, from all that he is. Now, uh, another theologian defines it this way. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness 
of God's manifold or numerous perfections. And finally, a lengthier definition of God's glory is, is this. God's glory includes the greatness, beauty, and perfection of all that he is. In everything that he is and in everything that he does, God is greater than human description. Every attribute and action of God is stunningly beautiful in every way. Each characteristic of God and every accomplishment from his hand is totally perfect. This is what we mean when we talk about God's glory. You probably saw some common threads in those definitions. What is Jesus' glory? It's his beauty, but the beauty of his, of his character, of who he is, his, his perfections, his perfect goodness, his perfect love, his, his majesty. And so in some sense, God's glory, Jesus' glory, it refers to the total sum of his character, the total sum of, of who he is. So to, to put it as simply as possible, maybe a, a simple definition of God's glory, of Jesus' glory, is it is the beauty of who he is, is the beauty of his character. So say, to say that, that Jesus is glorious is to say that he is perfect, and in his perfections he is beautiful, he is glorious. Just, just think of the most beautiful scene that you have ever seen. That first time maybe you did step on that snow-covered peak. Maybe the first time that, that you set foot on the beach and, and saw the vastness of the sea. Uh, think of the place that you just wanted to sit and stare because it was so beautiful. It just seemed like a, a perfect scene. Well, well, God is far more beautiful than that. He is far more glorious than that. His character his manifold perfections, his, mu- his numerous perfections should make us want to sit and behold him, to know him more, to take it in more, to never leave, to remain in his, in his presence. Now that is what it means for, for Jesus to be glorious. But to, to get a more complete picture of, of this glory, of God's glory, and and what was happening on the mountain, I think it would be important for us to go back to the Old Testament. So on this mountain, we see a couple of Old Testament figures present, Moses and Elijah. And so we're going to go back. You can actually go back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. We'll get there in just a moment. But first know that the fact that the transfiguration even happened on a mountain is actually significant in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament, mountaintops are often the place where God reveals himself to his people, where God speaks, where he reveals himself. Uh, This was true for both Moses and Elijah when they walked on earth. Uh, These two figures that were with Jesus at his transfiguration in in 1 Kings chapter 19, and God reveals himself to Elijah on a mountain. He reveals himself to Elijah by speaking to him in that Uh, That famous phrase, that still, small voice. Uh, We're not going to go to 1 Kings 19, but you can go and and read that on your own. But God reveals himself to Moses more than one time on a mountain. But we are going to look at the one in Exodus chapter 3. So let me actually turn there. I want to to look at that particular instance because I think it sheds light on what is going on at the, the transfiguration. So in Exodus 33, take a a look at verse 18. 
Moses is speaking with the Lord as we come to verse 18. And he asks God, please let me see your glory. We, We see the Lord's response to Moses starting in verse 19. He said, or the the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Well, so in this amazing scene, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God tells him, yes, I'm going to let you see something of my glory. He says, you're not going to be able to see the the fullness of my glory. You cannot see my face. Man is sinful. Man cannot look on the face of God and live. So you cannot see my face, but you're going to get to see my back as I pass by. But I want you to to see that that God actually reveals his glory to Moses in his character. He says he's going to make all his goodness pass in front of you. He's going to proclaim his name, who he is. Well, well, we're going to see more of that. Turn over to Exodus 34, 5. So the very next chapter, look with me, starting in verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, so now this is actually God's glory being revealed. He tells Moses, and now we're seeing it actually happen. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. Also notice, particularly in in those verses that we just read from Exodus, that when God revealed his glory, he revealed who he is. He told Moses what his character was like. He revealed his glory by revealing him himself. So so Moses saw a portion of God's glory as God passed before him as he gets to see the back. That would be an amazing sight. Perhaps more importantly, God spoke to him. He told Moses what he was like. He told him his his name. That is where God's glory and beauty were displayed. It was displayed in his character, in his revelation of himself to to Moses. And brothers and sisters, that should be encouraging to you because we have this, this whole Bible who tells us who God is. We have the revelation that God has wanted to give us about who he is, about his glory, and about his his beauty. We can turn to his word to know something of him. Well, as we we keep going in Exodus 34, that that brings us, we're going to skip ahead to those verses that Adebebe just read for us a few minutes ago. And so look at Exodus 34, 29. And following God's revelation to Moses, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai back to the people. And it said he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. 
And so as I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, Moses' face was shining because it was reflecting something of the glory of the Lord. His face was, was transformed. Even seeing just this little bit of God's glory on the mountain, just seeing God's back, led for his face to be transformed to such a way that the Israelites themselves feared. Uh, that reveals the, the truth that God's glory is both beautiful and fearful at the same time. It was fearful to the nation of Israel because uh, they had seen God's wrath. God does not forgive iniquity. God revealed himself to that way. So to see the fullness of God's glory, even just to see this reflection of God's glory in Moses' face, led the people to fear. God is majestic. And he is lovely. He is perfect. But he is something so far and utterly different than what we are. He is so far above us that even a glimpse of his glory and beauty should cause us to, to bow down and worship as Moses did. To have an awe before him. To, to tremble before him. But we also see in that, that encounter with Moses that, that an encounter with God's glory changed him. His face shone as a result of encountering God's glory. Brothers and sisters, you should know that, that God's glory, who he is, should change us as well. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that we are being transformed. As Christians, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. What does that mean? That It basically means that as Christians, as we come to know the Lord, as his spirit is at work sanctifying us, we are being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Our character should more and more match his character. But it's not because we are so good about changing ourselves that we have the ability to change ourselves. It's because as we encounter God's glory, as we learn of who he is in the scripture, God's spirit goes at work in our hearts. He changes us from one degree of glory to another. That starts with, it comes with having a knowledge of who he is, of understanding who he is, of getting a revelation of who he is. Brothers and sisters, we, we do that through his word. Well, that brings us back to the, the transfiguration, to what happened on that mountain in, in Luke chapter 9. So you can go back to Luke 9. But you probably noticed as Adababy was, was reading those verses, as we just went back to those verses, that what happened to Moses, what Moses experienced, that his face was changed. Well, it sounds quite a lot like what is going on here in, in Luke 9. Uh, that's intentional. This is an intentional recalling of what happened to Moses on that mountain. So you can look back at Luke 9, 29. Jesus' clothes and face were transformed on that mountain. His clothes became dazzling white. It's a, it's a picture of his purity, of his perfection. You remember back to Pastor Aaron's sermon from 1 John a few weeks ago. What does, what does John write in 1 John? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, this is a picture of that. This is like the visible display of what John is writing there. John was on this mountain as Jesus was transfigured. My guess is he had something of that in mind as he was writing those verses in 1 John. But as we've already said, the, the difference between what happened to Moses on Mount Sinai and what was happening to, to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is that Moses was simply reflecting the glory of the Lord. He was like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. 
We know the moon does not have light of itself. Were it not for the sun, you would not see the moon, but it reflects it reflects the light of the sun, and so we, we see it. Moses was reflecting something of the glory of the Lord. Well, well, Jesus is like the sun itself. He is the light. He is not reflecting a glory. His glory is coming from within. What was going on in the mountain is, is Jesus. Jesus revealing something of his true nature. His glory was veiled when he took on human flesh for a time, but, but his true nature, his true beauty, his true glory, his true purity was being revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. This was a revelation of God's glory on the mountain. Hebrews 1.3 The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of his nature. This is why Jesus could say, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. If you have seen me, Jesus, you have seen the Father, because the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. God is one and exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is God. Well, in revealing his glory there on the mountain, Jesus was revealing something of the glory that had been his and was his from all eternity. The Bible tells us that Jesus was there with the Father at the beginning. He is just as much God as God the Father. He has the same glory as the Father. When he came to earth, he concealed something of that glory in human flesh for a time, but Jesus had glory from all eternity. And so in the transfiguration, Peter, James, John, they're getting a, a picture of the beauty and majesty and glory of Jesus that he has had from all time, and he will have for all time. Not a full picture, not a full display, but they were getting a glimpse. They were getting a glimpse of, of his glory. And what an amazing privilege that they had. But they weren't just getting a picture of God's glory from all eternity. They were getting a picture of the glory that will be on full display for all to see when Jesus comes again. They were getting pointed forward. They were getting pointed forward for what it will be like when Jesus returns and his full glory is on display for all to see when Christ comes again. And Jesus will one day return in glory. and Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His beauty and his glory will be there for all to see. And so I, I want you to see that, that as Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples, he is, is reminding them of the glory he's had from all eternity, but he's also pointing them forward. And so when we think about the purpose of the transfiguration, I think the main purpose was to, to reveal Jesus' glory. But it was to reveal it in order that his identity as the Son of God would be confirmed we're going to look at that in just a second. And that the disciples will be encouraged to persevere as they get a picture of this glory that, will be, that, that Jesus will fully reveal when he comes again. And so that brings us to the, the second point of the sermon, confirmation. First is revelation, what is going on. Jesus is revealing his glory. What was some of the purpose? Well, some is just to reveal his glory, to show his beauty. But it's also to confirm his identity. That the display of Jesus' glory was for the sake of his disciples. This is why Jesus brought a few of them along as witnesses to his transfiguration. This, this event was for their benefit. He was teaching them. He was encouraging them. Remember the, the context of where we are in Luke's gospel. Last week in the, the verses just preceding this, 
Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, one of these disciples that was on the mountain with him, he gave the right answer, you are God's Messiah. But then remember that that Jesus said something that was surprising to the disciples. He said that his mission was going to, to be to suffer many things, to be rejected, or to be killed. He identified himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he'd be crushed for our iniquities. And so more, but more than that, he said that anyone who would follow him, anyone who would become his disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross or be willing to suffer to follow him. Now, if you're a disciple, that's probably not the most exciting message in the world to hear. You want to deny yourself and, and take up your cross and follow him. That's a, a difficult message. It's a, the cost of discipleship, as it's often called. So knowing the path that lay ahead of him, knowing the, the path that led to the cross, and knowing the path of suffering that lay before his disciples, what did God do? Well, he provided a small glimpse of Jesus' glory for them to see. He confirmed that though Jesus would suffer and die, that was not the end of the story. That would not be the end of the story. He would be exalted. One day he would return in glory. I think God is being incredibly gracious to the disciples here on on the mountain to give a, a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, to get a small picture of his true beauty and majesty. I think he does it in part to strengthen their faith to encourage them to persevere in the midst of their own suffering. You see Peter and John, even in their later writings, recalling this time. They didn't understand it at the time, but they did later after Jesus died and was was raised again. They come to understand what was going on here. And look at verse 35 of, of our text. As they are on the mountain, a voice speaks from the cloud. Remember back to those verses from Exodus. Where was God speaking to Moses as he revealed himself to him? He was speaking from a cloud. Uh, This is clearly God speaking from the cloud. uh, Luke is uh, particularly drawing on that imagery from the Old Testament to make it clear that it is God speaking here. And what does God say? This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, he's saying more than this. But you might say, he's saying, Peter, what you said is right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Prophesied One, the Long-Promised King. Listen to his words. Listen to his teaching. Listen even to his promise about his suffering and death. I think God was gracious to confirm in a grand and glorious way the identity of Jesus Christ on the mountain. In the chapters that follow in Luke, the opposition to Jesus just increases. We've already seen some opposition to Jesus. But as he gets closer and closer to the crucifixion, that opposition just increases. So God is gracious to give the disciples confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. To encourage them to follow him even when the road gets increasingly difficult. So though the disciples do not understand it at the time, but... Uh, The transfiguration is there to encourage them. And the transfiguration is to encourage them by revealing that Jesus' suffering and death would not be the end of the story. Look again at, at verse 31. 
Well, what is it that, that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are talking about on the mountain? They're talking about Jesus' death. It's what is meant by his departure, that his death on the cross, that he would be crucified in Jerusalem. If you ever doubted that the crucifixion was part of God's plan, notice here that, that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about what is going to happen in Jerusalem far before Jesus gets there. Well, their conversation is a continuation of Jesus' message to his disciples in the verses we looked at last week, that Jesus would suffer and die. Uh, but his glory that was on display, again, showed that his death was not the end of the story. Just listen to how the Bible speaks of Jesus' return. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. Matthew 25.31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus will one day return in glory. Suffering and death is not the end. We know that Jesus did not remain in the grave, that he was raised, that he ascended into heaven, that he is sitting at the Father's right hand even now. And he will one day return in glory and the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. The transfiguration is a glimpse of this truth. It's a glimpse of what is to be. It's a glimpse of what is to come. And this reality was, was meant to motivate the disciples to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Why? Because their suffering would one day be worth it as they shared in the glory of Jesus. I'm sure this will come as no surprise to any of you, but I have never given birth to a child. So I'm speaking out of a bit of ignorance here, but by all accounts, it is a very painful experience. It's difficult, it's hard work, it hurts. Uh, I've not given birth, but I have been witnesses to four births, the four births of my children, and, and at least from what I saw, I, I think the truth of that is, I think those things are very true. It is very difficult, it is hard work, it's very painful. So what is it that makes women go through with it? Now, why, after, after a woman has one baby, do they choose to have any others? Now, why do we have four children? What makes them want to endure the pain of childbirth? The answer is the joy that waits on the other side. It's because they get to hold a newborn baby in their arms when it is all over. Because that child will be their child for life. They get to watch him or her grow up. That Lord willing, the momentary suffering of, of childbirth results in a lifetime of joy. Well, brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for the Christian life. Now, Christians, the church is called to endure suffering, to take up their cross, to follow Jesus, to be imitators of Jesus in his suffering. Not because we look forward to pain, not because it's like, yes, we want, we want the suffering, but because it is worth it. Because if Christians share in Christ's suffering, they will one day share in his glory. In fact, Peter, Peter who is on the mountain with Jesus right here, makes this very point in 1 Peter. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Paul writes something similar in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. 
So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is Paul teaching in those verses? What is Peter teaching in in 1 Peter? They're they're teaching that suffering is preparing you for the glory that will one day be revealed. A glory that will be much greater than what was revealed at the transfiguration. But also a glory that is believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that you get to share in. It is marvelous. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does call you to take up your cross, to follow him. But he promises that the sacrifices that you make in this life for his sake will be worth it. This is what he was reminding the disciples of at the Transfiguration. It's what he's reminding you of today. How do you endure the trials of life? How do you rejoice in suffering? It's to remember that it's not the end of the story. To remind yourself that Jesus did not just die for you. He was raised from the dead for you. That he will one day return in glory to take you home. You will receive the eternal weight of glory and the crown of life if you remain faithful to him. And so for those of you who may be struggling or in a difficult season, those of you who may be suffering, have suffered, or will suffer for, for being a Christian, do not give up. Your light, momentary affliction is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. Let this message, let this picture of Jesus' glory as he was transfigured be an encouragement to you. Brings us to the final point of the sermon response. We have revelation, confirmation, and now response. Most people are uncomfortable with a, a long silence. See what I mean? I remember when I first started teaching Sunday school at my previous church, one of the pieces of advice I got is that when you ask a question and you want the the people there there in Sunday school to answer, you need to give them like 15 to 20 seconds. You just need to be quiet for 15 to 20 seconds. 15 to 20 seconds doesn't sound like a long time, but I was probably only silent for like five seconds right there. And then you were probably already feeling a little bit uncomfortable. I was a little bit uncomfortable and I knew what I was going to do. Uh, But the point is that people are uncomfortable with silence. They get nervous, so they have a tendency to just talk, even if they don't really know what to say. They just want to fill the silence. That seems to be a little bit like what's going on with Peter at the Transfiguration. Here he is, this amazing scene. Jesus is revealing his glory. Uh, Moses, Elijah, they're there. He and James and John get to watch it all unfold. But what does Peter do? We see in verse 33, Moses and Elijah seem like they're about to leave. Peter has no idea what to do. He's been sitting there silently. He's nervous. And so he just starts talking. So we read in verse 33 that he says, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. Well, now, what exactly Peter means by this is hard to know. Commentators have a few different theories about what he actually means. But what they seem to be in agreement on is whatever exactly Peter means, he is making at least one crucial error. He is putting Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the same level. He wants to build a tent for for all three. He sees the the glory of of all three. They seem like equals in his sight. And so uh, he's he's asking that they construct a tent for, for all three. 
Uh, the, the problem, of course, as we've known, as we've seen throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is so much greater than Elijah or Moses. The point was not to reveal any glory of Elijah and Moses on that mountain, but Jesus' glory. And so God speaks from the cloud and, and makes this abundantly clear. Uh, who is Jesus? This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And God speaks out of the cloud to make this point clear. Uh, so though, though Peter was rightly understood and rightly confessed in the verses we looked at last week that Jesus is the Messiah, he seemed to still not be grasping the full meaning of that statement. He still didn't seem to, he's still in process trying to figure out what is going on and who Jesus is. Well, many scholars also suggest that Moses and Elijah appear on the mountaintop with Jesus here because they're representatives of the law and the prophets. So God's law giving to Moses on the mountaintop, Elijah, one of the most famous Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah are representatives of the law and the prophets, which is to say they're representatives of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Law and prophets is all often used in the Bible, or at least sometimes used in the Bible, to speak of all of the Old Testament scriptures. So the thinking goes that they represent the Old Covenant, and therefore when God is saying here, listen to Jesus, he's saying something extraordinary. He is saying that the, the climax or the high point of God's revelation to man is Jesus Christ. He is what the law and the prophets are pointing to. Jesus is what the Old Testament scriptures are pointing to. He is the height of God's revelation of mankind. Listen to him. It doesn't mean we throw away the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just as much God's word and Jesus' words as the New Testament. But it does mean that we should read it in light of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses tells the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Well, who is this prophet like Moses that God would raise up, a prophet that would be greater than Moses? It's Jesus Christ. See Moses say, what are you to do to Jesus? Listen to him. What does God say on this mountain that you are to do to, to Jesus? Listen to him. In the same way that children should listen to parents, employees, to bosses, patients, to their doctors, uh, to those of us who are ignorant in a certain field should listen to those who are experts in that same field. The right response to Jesus is to listen. And friends, if, if you are here, and you are not a Christian, you should know that at its most basic level, at its most basic level, listening to Jesus is believing in him. At its most basic level, listening to Jesus is placing your faith in him. In John chapter 10, Jesus told those who refused to believe he was the Messiah, the crowds that had been witnessing his miracles that refused to believe, this is what he said. The works that I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In other words, what is one of the central things that characterizes the people of God? It's that they hear Jesus' voice and they listen. God has given them ears to hear. They listen. In other words, they believe. They follow to listen to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus has said exactly who he is. 
Friends, today you have a whole Bible that speaks to who Jesus is. You have people preaching the word of God that tells you who Jesus is. Jesus has demonstrated exactly who he is. He calls you to, to listen. He calls you to, to believe. And so friends, if you are here and, and you're not a Christian, I urge you to listen to the word of God. To see the glory and the beauty of, of Jesus Christ and to believe Believe that he is all-glorious. Believe that he is worthy of praise. Believe that he, in his great humility, humbled himself, veiled his glory, and came to earth to die a death on the cross for all who would repent and believe in him. Believe that it is worth it to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to follow him. If you would like to know more about what it means to believe in Jesus or to follow Jesus, Please come talk to me after the service. Please come talk to another member of the church. I'm sure any of us would be more than happy to, to talk to you. So first and foremost, listening to Jesus is to believe. But Christian, listening to Jesus is also to obey him. Again, recall Pastor Aaron's sermon from 1 John from a couple of weeks ago. What, was, what did John write in 1 John 2, 3 through 5? Well, this is what he wrote. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. Now, friends, listening to Jesus is to follow him, obey him, even when it is hard. Remember back to that passage from 2 Corinthians that I quoted. Christians are those who are being transformed from one degree of glory to another by God's Spirit. Well, how are we transformed from one degree of glory to another? Well, friends, it, it starts with listening to Jesus, to coming to his word and beholding God's character. As we see his goodness and meditate on his goodness, it leads us to be good to others. So we remember that God is a God who is slow to anger. So we meditate on that truth. If we have God's spirit at work in us, it helps us to put off anger. So we see God's kindness and compassion to others. As we meditate on the truth of how God has been kind and compassionate to us, what does that do? Friends, it helps change us from one degree of glory to another, that we would be kind and compassionate to someone else. Brothers and sisters, we come to the scriptures to behold God's glory. We do that because Jesus is glorious and beautiful, but we do it also because it helps change us from one degree of glory to another as God's spirit is at work within us. So brothers and sisters, much of what you should do in response to the transfiguration is simply to stand amazed at Jesus Christ. He is being held up. He is glorious. He is worthy of all praise. Well, as much of what you should do in response to, to this text is to simply stand amazed at Jesus. To bow down and worship to the risen Savior who has such beauty and glory. Bow down and worship Jesus who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. So I pray that this afternoon, this week, that you would just simply stop and marvel at the beauty of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you ever taken time to think about how beautiful and glorious and perfect Jesus is? You've taken time to meditate on his attributes. I think we actually have a book back there in the library that you can check out that is about the attributes of God. 
Just take time to think on who Jesus is. Take time to know him better. Do you believe that he is glorious and beautiful? Do you want to sit in his presence to, to know him more? But brothers and sisters, uh, also I think in response to the trans- transfiguration is that you learn to listen and obey. And you can do that by setting your hope on your future glory. Again, to go back to, to 1 Peter, those words, words that the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter, well, he writes this as he encourages Christians towards holiness. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Do you notice what Peter said was to motivate believers towards holiness? What was to motivate them to be transformed from one degree of glory to another? Well, it's by setting their hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he comes back in glory. Brothers and sisters, have you ever thought about what it will be like when Jesus returns? Or what it will be like in the new heavens and the new earth when we behold Jesus' glory fully? Well, take some time this afternoon or this week to do that. Pray that God would help you set your hope on the future, on this glorious return of Jesus for Christ. This is how you listen, obey, and persevere. Brothers and sisters, you have been called, justified, sanctified, and you will one day be glorified by Jesus, to whom belongs our glory and power and might. He is supremely glorious, and it is worth it to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you, and Father, we...